Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Our guest today is Sonny Dillon, one of the managing directors of Signia Ventures. Signia invests at the seed and series A stages in great entrepreneurs that are applying new technologies and innovative business models to old industries. Sunny's investments include Manscraped, Boxed, and Moment Feed. Previously, Sunny co-founded Barstool, one of the first dating apps in the App Store. It was such a pleasure having study on where we discuss why beauty has been overlooked from investors, dark storage becoming a larger trend, and consumer tech innovation. Without further ado, here's Sunny. Sunny, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am incredibly well. Thank you for having me here today, man. I look forward to uh, chatting through some all things consumer VC, right? Yeah, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Stoked to have you on the show. So let's talk about like what initially attracted you to working in venture capital and as well becoming an entrepreneur. I think ass backwards falling into these things is kind of the only motto I've had that has held true, Um, given that there's been a lot of inconsistency in my career path. I started as an investment banker covering gaming and tech companies in London, you know, working those crazy 20 hour days, seven days a week for several years, just kind of hoping for a better life in many ways of uh, work-life balance, I should say. I skipped forward to, you know, after doing banking, I worked at a startup before business school in digital media. Uh, so doing all things content, IP licensing, monetization on early feature phones for the producers of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, who had a venture back spinoff that came out of New Line Cinema and was based in London and LA. So I got my feet wet there, uh, realized that a startup is chaos, that you're putting out many fires, many, many minutes out of the day. And then the moments you have to actually focus on true strategic goals are usually those moments that you know something else pops up. So I actually was attracted to the chaos and working to many different functions across the board for a seed stage company. And then I realized I had a taste for early stage stuff, went to business school at Kellogg in Chicago and launched one of the app stores first location-based apps in 2011. Back when there was like less than a few hundred apps in the app store, there was no editor, there was nobody teaching you Objective-C or anything. You know, luckily my partner at the time was an amazing CS, had an amazing CS background, so he figured a lot of it out. But then after that, we started to invest in uh, media and content startups in LA, actually, for the now current governor of Illinois, J.D. Pritzker and his uh, family office, which was pretty fun. So yeah, just knew I wanted to work with, you know, best-in-class founders, building world changing companies. And I thought that tech would probably be the fastest way to get there. Plus, like combine that with a childhood propensity for ADHD and ventures really well suited to, you know, someone that wants to look at a lot of different things at once uh, versus staying like narrowly focused on one very singular problem. So, you know, venture has been kind of a, an ass backwards perfect fit for me. That makes a lot of sense. It's funny. I, I, I forget which book I just, I just read, but this author said that how he thinks that some of the best VCs are have ADHD because you're just examining so many different different industries and categories all at once. I know like 
you wrote this really interesting article about the future of the grocery store and, and, and really grocery we haven't really covered on the show. So I'm really excited to dive in there and how groceries are using their footprint and that's and how that needs to change or is changing. Talk to me about some of the changes that you're seeing and will continue to see in the grocery store model. Yeah, I never thought that I would end up going so deep on the Kroger's, Albertsons, Ajo, Del Hayes's and the you know, Whole Foods of the world. I don't even like going grocery shopping. Corona catalyzed e-commerce adoption, whatever you want to call it of ordering your groceries online has been like what I've been doing <laughs> since it was possible because I hate going to the grocery store. I just don't like being there. It's so crowded. You know, there's Instacart shoppers. It just distracts from what you're there to do. And uh, yeah, I don't like it. So I think there's a few things that I've started digging into when it comes to grocery about innovation as an extension of retail tech in general. So I kind of feel that grocers in particular operate on razor thin margins. And as the world has kind of adapted to living in you know, this weird pandemic zombie apocalypse that we're calling the new normal, there's been a shift towards accelerated e-commerce adoption just by the nature of you can't go, you can go to the grocery store uh, due to quarantine rules, right? So I think there's been a lot more people shopping for their groceries online for the first time. So all of the analytics that go into you know, making e-commerce better, including for grocery, so the search box, you know, can be made better with companies like Constructor uh, that we're an investor in. Or, you know, when it comes to fulfillment, people expect same day, two hour, increasingly in the future, sub one hour delivery windows. So there's better logistics tech that comes from, you know, moving things from fulfillment center to shop floor to e-commerce fulfillment to delivery vehicle and better linking the, the need for omni-channel customer tracking has really become all the more prevalent given that that same customer, not me, as I said, but the same customer that goes into the grocery store is also the same one that's shopping online. And there's not really anyone better to tie your online to your offline than when it, uh, in this space than Amazon. So that kind of opens up a window of a whole like democratization of Amazon style tools for other retailers, particularly within grocery, that's become a, a big thing. An increase in shop floor analytics, who's buying what and when, a reduction in wastage through better prediction of consumer demand, smarter delivery tech to sync warehouse and distro centers, like I talked about, an investment in biological solutions, like there's these new plant-based preservatives to help produce last uh, longer on the shelf these days. So, you know, there's a whole host of big, big grocers out there, Walmart included these days increasingly, that kind of have to understand the complex web of technology that Amazon's employing, and that they better hustle and catch up to before they have their, uh, their you know, grocery store breakfast eaten for them. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I remember in the article that you wrote about Kroger's strategy with having like major hubs for fulfillment, and then you have more of the Walmart strategy, which is micro hubs. I would just be interested, what are your thoughts around the specific structure that might be the best optimized? Yeah, so we're, we're an investor in a company called Boxed Wholesale, which has done amazingly well, was growing fast before Corona. It's kind of like a millennial-focused Costco, mobile-first Costco, focused all entirely on buying in bulk. You know, if your paper towels, your soap, your, your toilet paper, things like that. And you see like some of the videos that they've put out on CNBC and NBC and stuff. And you see like a warehouse in the back that looks more like almost like a Detroit car factory, given how much automation there is, more so than like, a, you know, a stock room at a general store. You see robots on the ground, spider robots crawling on that accordingly. So a lot of it is focused on picking and packing the stuff as soon as the order comes in and then like getting that to the driver and batching it and kind of using the, you know, the Uber optimized style of uh, transport optimization, logistics planning or whatever to be able to get it to that customer ASAP. So I think a very, very big part of this is actually focused on this category of uh, dark stores 
it's where you're going to see so many strip malls now, unfortunately, go out of business for the tenants that can't afford to pay mortgages pretty soon. And I think a lot of those stores are going to start becoming uh, e-commerce dark stores for purely for fulfillment purposes, because it's all about using the physical footprint to get you that stuff you ordered as soon as you ordered it. Instant gratification is something that Amazon is normalizing and that once again, the rest of the retail panorama needs to play catch up to. No, that makes sense. I mean, what I find interesting is like what's been happening in China. I think that JD.com did a partnership with Walmart where JD would use Walmart as also fulfillment hubs. Do you think that there are going to be those types of partnerships happening or already happening in the US fulfillment centers? Yeah, you've already seen Simon Property Group who owns like a lot of the Sears and JCPenney kind of stores that are now a lot of them are bankrupt, right? I think the the companies themselves are bankrupt in malls being used as e-com fulfillment uh, warehouses. So I think that you are already seeing real estate folks be able to partner with e-commerce first brand building marketing machines so that you can kind of, you know, I don't think it works out great for the real estate folks because, you know, yes, you've got evictions and stuff, but at the same time, you're also paying a lot less per square for industrial automation than you are for like restaurant and retail space. So it's going to be a big, big change. Plus, when you go into those shopping malls, it's like kind of tough to be able to say, hey, if there's an e-commerce fulfillment center here. This is going to attract foot traffic for other stores nearby as well. You know what I mean? For sure. For sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. How are you thinking about in terms of like the future of retail? Are you going to start seeing more and more large stores now kind of become compressed and go down in terms of size? And then now you're going to have a lot of little stores. I think we're seeing it already with, you know, some forward looking folks up top at places like Target. There's a reason that they're expanding to do more city targets than they are at the big, you know, mega store kind of model. You know, this is the benefit that established retail chains do have and is, is part of why Amazon is moving into its own physical footprints in so many locations outside of its mega warehouses. Now, mega warehouses are great to like, you know, restock the mainframe can restock the machines, but like, those machines then need little micro refueling hubs to make sure that they're getting you your shit in under an hour, right? So I think it comes back to this dark store model that I was talking about. You're going to see a lot more real estate become that hub and spoke model, but you're also seeing established retailers who already had pretty big retail footprint, like bricks and mortar footprint, geographic density wise, to really leverage that as part of their, you know, 800 pound gorilla muscle, you know, versus when it comes to, you know, some of these small fulfillment logistics folks, you know, small warehouse kind of who have Frankenstein together, small, you know, mom and pop warehouses everywhere. Shit, if this was me and I was Amazon, I would go buy out like every ugly, fugly public storage facility that I see in every city that's just like, you know, full of crackheads and, you know, empty crap and stuff because it's already cheap real estate, right? And turn those into your fulfillment centers. You don't need to be buying expensive Palisades properties so that you can deliver stuff in 15 minutes. Like there's better ways to do it than I think we're seeing, but I think the opportunity is going to arise with like, you know, ailing retailers who never embraced e-commerce, JCPenney, Sears, et cetera, go the way of the dodo. And that real estate is going to get snapped up whereby, you know, the market indicates that the lo- there's the largest demand, which is e-com companies, right? No, totally. Totally. Thanks so much for that. Uh, no, that was great. I know one of the other areas that you're interested in is beauty. Talk to me a little bit about how you're thinking about the current landscape, especially when it comes to trying new products and the sales process, since folks aren't really able to or going to many stores since the stores aren't really open. Yeah, no, I still remember having to explain to my fiance when I came back with uh, different swatches of color, eyeshadow and stuff on the back of my hand, you know, had had some uh, answers to give. But, you know, she's a beauty entrepreneur. I've seen her business launch, you know, out of our apartment to the great success that it is now. Quick plug for Paradox Beauty. But it's been a real eye opener 
to probably one of the, we're all obsessed with like software margins up here in San Francisco, but I think people forget that beauty is one of those categories within CPG that has similar software margins of like 80 or 90% gross margins. I think that we're going to see a lot of consolidation M&A in the sector for startup app brands specifically in beauty. I wonder if the current like, you know, FAC regime, the special purpose acquisition company kind of vehicles will do a roll up a lot of these beauty brands and take them public because I think these facts lend themselves very well to uh, retail investors who already understand the brand and the cash flows and you know have some love for the for the company like the glossiers of the world etc could do really well in that format i think but you still got to be finding those that are like fast growing positive ebitda you know etc etc and a lot of them unfortunately have tapered off growth these days and this is happening way before covid because a lot of them kind of thought that D2C was a unique and sufficient angle to kind of land and expand from, you know, within D2C, within more, you know, subcategories, more product line extensions, et cetera. And you eventually realize that you hit a Facebook cap, a cost of customer acquisition ceiling really fast. And, you know, you're no longer the best things in sliced bread when it comes out to, you know, converting a beauty blog to a billion dollar brand. Like that billion dollar brand valuation might be something that doesn't last for long when omni-channel becomes all important. I think we were just reading yesterday that Glossier's had to shutter a lot of its uh, retail stores. And that's as a result likely of COVID. But at the same time, I think its e-commerce business is what it would have been valued for in an M&A strategy. And if I was those guys, I would have sold a long time ago, the kind of height of a uh, their D2C success. I think your question also is around how do you try stuff? Like what are people doing to try before they buy? You know, there's so many little augmented reality apps that you can integrate, you know, that Sephora, Ulta, et cetera, Target has, you know, in their various apps. Now that you can see what you look like pretty accurately with that eyeshadow, that eyeliner, that, you know, highlighter, et cetera. So I think that reduces some of the friction. But I think a lot of times, like how often do you buy stuff Mike from Amazon that you've never tried before, but you go off of reviews, right? You go off of the reviews of what people you trust say, uh, word of mouth, you know, what Pinterest pages you're following, et cetera, et cetera, or what Instagram you're following. Same thing goes in beauty. I think it's a habitual and regularly purchased from a frequency perspective, there's a high frequency of purchase that I think factor into people being willing to try a lot of new things with relatively low friction. So I don't think that necessarily stores being shut down is a reduction to buyers' uh, willingness to try new beauty products before they purchase. I don't think that try before you buy issues necessarily the impediment that's caused by Corona here. During COVID, has it been harder to find conviction in founders when you're meeting with them remotely? I feel sorry for my buddies who are trying to do like the Zoom speed dating. I feel sorry for, you know, myself when I can't see new baby relatives in person and Zoom is the only way or FaceTime is the only way to do it. So yes, there's certain scenarios where I think Zoom really sucks. I don't think that we have the right to complain about it being like devastating to the venture world. I think it's a minor inconvenience, but I think it's actually a generational, a little bit of a generational thing too. I think it's actually benefited at least me more relative to other folks I know who lament this, but but I've always been more active on LinkedIn, Twitter, and remote first channels to meet people. It's kind of like how you scale the number of meetings that you can take, the breadth of where pitches were coming from, because obviously you're not going to be in Chicago, Miami, New York as regularly as you can pick up the phone versus like, you know, just the one square mile radius of South Park and Soma with like the same white male Stanford Berkeley dudes, you know, just kind of uh, traipsing through the same doors all the time. I actually found uh, digital first sourcing strategies to be far more effective for the kind of stuff I like to do. And plus like reference checking is really easily done these days. So I don't think it makes a ton of difference for an early stage check, which is what I do as to whether I've met the founder in person or not. Two of my best bets to date, both Manscaped and uh, Fox Wholesale were both done remotely. So that was uh, way before COVID. So it's not really an issue for me. 
That's awesome. No, that's great to hear. And I'm glad that you brought up different markets too. I had on Charles Hudson who said, because I asked him a question, are you comfortable investing in companies that are located in secondary tertiary markets outside of the coast? And he said, it's fine to start a company in maybe a secondary tertiary market, but when it comes to actually building, there has to be a plan to have a location in San Francisco, LA, New York, maybe Chicago, but there has to be a plan to move just because of scale for hiring purposes. Want to know how you think about investing in companies that are located in secondary and tertiary markets? So I think having a bit of a, a unique perspective as having been a Silicon Valley outsider, you know, coming from England and then making my way through Chicago for business school and then coming out to San Francisco before really knowing anybody that was a window into there being amazing companies that i've met in so many places outside of san francisco i do think that deal sourcing has diversified beyond knowing the right angel or the right vc fund on sand hill road to being the same there's like corporate vc firms there's family offices there's angels all over the country now that have access to twitter angel list you know the same reddit threads where you're sourcing consumer deals the you know the same Instagram pages that you're following for new brands, et cetera. So I do think there's a democratization happening. I do agree with Charlie in that I think that you are still going to find certain kinds of talent to augment your vision from a hiring perspective in these coastal hubs or in some of the bigger tier one cities, as we just described them. Is entrepreneurship limited to those cities from a founding story and kind of a founding mission and a founding team? Absolutely not. So um, I agree with like 90% of that comment. How are you thinking right now? I mean, obviously, I know some people are, are going back. I mean, I don't know. I also had a, a call with a couple of investors in Germany and they're all back to work. But here in the US, how are you thinking like going forward? Are you comfortable investing in companies that um, that are moving forward because of COVID are fully remote? So I, we actually used to look disadvantageously upon companies that had remote teams and distributed workforces because we thought, you know, what's the DNA situation of the founders? How often do they talk if there's only a two hour time zone, Venn diagram overlap, things like that. Like, how can you form culture when you're not sitting in the same place? Even before COVID, largely from our expertise in the games business, we started seeing this become a trend more and more earlier and earlier. So this has been a thing now since 2015, 2016 that we've been kind of almost advocating to get away from high Silicon Valley, LA, New York rents and commercial real estate costs and high engineering costs. Because keep in mind, every engineer you hire is going to be also looking at offers from Google, Facebook, Alibaba, Tencent, et cetera. So you, you've got to be able to compete for the good talent. And if you can get that same engineer in Eastern Europe or South America, why the hell would you pay 200 grand, 250 grand for an iOS developer that you could get for like 50K a year in Ukraine? Do you know what I mean? Who's just as good, just as amazing. So I think the distributed team thing is actually something we look beneficially upon these days. I do think that founder DNA is important. So if it's like completely remote team and the founders didn't ever know each other before and they're kind of just getting together on Zoom and FaceTime for the first time, that's probably not a good launch pad to kind of say, hey, this is why we work well together. And I don't want people to spend my venture dollars learning on my dime when it comes to that kind of risk of these folks not even knowing each other. That's probably the important line that I will draw. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's really great that you've been so open to Turmo teams even before COVID and you saw that as a trend. I want to also discuss, I think we covered this a little bit before, but the DC channel as it relates to CPG has been out of fashion for the past couple of years as there's no more arbitrage opportunities when it comes to advertising since you have this duopoly in Google and Facebook. Now, you know, DTC due to COVID. And now I believe I heard on another podcast, it's 30% of, of Nike's business, which they were hoping to achieve that number in about five years. How are you right now thinking about that? That channel and evaluating businesses that are DNVBs? 
I think it's like, it's so funny to me that the big guys take so long to catch up, right? Like the fact that they're only just now coming around to D2C in 2020 or 2019 is kind of hilarious. But, you know, Nike should have been having certain D2C channels for certain sub brands a long time ago. They should have been like, you know, hawking golf products through whatever golfer on Instagram far earlier on. They should have had Jordans have a bigger part of the secondary market that's now dominated by StockX and Goat. Like they could have run that themselves, right? In a pretty authentic way. And I think that D2C more generally is now emerging as part of an omni-channel strategy. Like the margins have eroded away, you know, that Glossier enjoyed seven years ago, for example. Facebook and Insta user acquisition is far too expensive to like create any meaningful user acquisition moat these days. So you got to really be careful. I think the sheer fact that the big guys are now coming into this category and are trying to set up direct channels to the consumer and cut out distributors and retailers, et cetera, is already an amplification of what has been happening, which is like more crowding means more expensive ads. And that kind of takes away a lot of the unique organic virality that would have accompanied first movers back in the day. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I thought that was also kind of an, an interesting stat about Nike. And I agree with you on that. What are some other consumer trends that you're right now focused on? So like I said, trends in retail tech, which we affect grocery, like we talked about earlier, acceleration of e-commerce and all the e-commerce infrastructure kind of stuff that goes in from like product recommendations and personalization, which once again is a Amazon tool that we want to democratize for other people, other grocers and other retailers and merchandising insights and analytics of what people are searching for on your site and what they're doing on your site. And I think that's all coming as an acceleration and a permanent acceleration of e-commerce adoption for online, you know, just for, for shopping in general. I think the expectation of sub one hour delivery windows, like we talked about, there's certain companies out there like uh, Gatier in Turkey, GoPuff based out of Philly that will kind of get you convenience store products quickly. DoorDash, I think just launched um, Dashmart, which is their own convenience store to get you like sub 30 minute kind of cold medicine, things like that, you know, everyday items from CVS. And then I think the final thing is from a more of a software component from a branding perspective, cleaner products with sustainability at the heart of what they do is kind of a the baseline of what you need for Gen Z kind of uh, brand adoption these days. You know, we talked about clean beauty and Leaping Bunny and PETA and all this kind of stuff that you have in the beauty business. I think all that stuff, clean beauty is not a differentiator anymore. It's like a, 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 a floor before you get jump into that business. What I find interesting about, you know, cleaner products with sustainability at the heart for Gen Z, how that that's the baseline now is when I think about cleaner products, I think that there is a premium that is charged to it because they're harder to produce. It's better for you ingredients. How are you thinking about cleaner products, uh, premium products for the, uh, the mass market? Yeah, I think going after uglier categories and less sexy categories is kind of where that's going to be stepping up as more of an opportunity for venture investors. I think that there'll be good big news coming up for, I'm sure, for companies like Sunday, the lawn care company, the space out of Denver at some point soon. Like I've been a big fan of that company. I'm not an investor, just a fan. Do you know them? They came on the show. Oh, terrific. I forget the founder's name. Coulter Lewis. Coulter, He's great. Coulter. Um, I think that was a really smart adaptation of a few tech trends, right? Sunday is one of those examples where cleanliness of ingredients and environmental, reduced environmental degradation from product use was a more unique angle in a category that was surrounded by cancer causing, pollutant heavy, you know, roundup kind of court cases that were in the public eye at the time. Combined with amazing technology for satellite imagery that was already being used for roofing companies and, you know, real estate planning companies, et cetera, and like open door and stuff here in San Francisco. And so I think applying the clean angle was just one of several things that worked really well for you know a slightly less sexy category versus using clean as any kind of differentiator uh, in a heavily crowded and saturated use of the term 
these days, uh, such as in the beauty market. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for using that as an example. And yeah, quick shout out to uh, Coulter. He was great to have on the show. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Oh my God, easily hands down. Way, way, way too many white guys with the same perspective. I really think diversity is key and we need that from an age, sex, and you know identity perspective. It brings in better deals. It breaks the echo chamber that this place has kind of like cursed itself into since the 60s. I've done a lot of, I have a degree in international history and a lot of what I focused on in the past was just reading about Silicon Valley history and innovation, you know, the history of entertainment in LA, et cetera. And I think that echo chambers are never a good thing. The age of globalization being hammered with what's going on in the, in the macro economy and the global economy right now is a sign of problems to come here, I think. But specifically within this little bubble of venture capital, I think you don't just need to be looking for SaaS, enterprise, EV, EBITDA kind of multiples, like having insight into what differentiates a brand from another brand, having an insight into consumers that don't look like you and that you can't empathize with, having a broad range of opinion in general often fosters some of the most creative solutions. So I think that absolutely adding diversity to uh, to venture is very, very important. I'm actually a, a supporter of a good buddy's company that's kind of working towards this in venture and in professional, many professional fields in general called Valence Community down in Los Angeles. Cool. No, that's, that's awesome. And I completely agree with you that it's certainly a huge issue. That's certainly been publicized and talked about a lot, which is great. And that a lot more action needs to come absolutely for more diversity in venture. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Interesting. So professionally, I think it's a book called Troublemakers by Leslie Berlin. It talks about the founding stories of like Apple, Atari, Genentech, a bunch of the Stanford's Innovation Lab, a bunch of companies like that. Because like I said, as an outsider to Silicon Valley 10 years ago, this is an impactful book for me that kind of talked about the giants that paved the way for venture funds like mine before I launched mine. So it's kind of important to know where you've been before you know where you're going. So that was a very insightful read. It's also informed my views on, you know, the Valley needing to be much more diverse. That was not the case in those early days. And then I think personally, that's an interesting one. I really, really was, imp- I'm a big sci-fi buff. So besides, you know, the anthologies of like Dune and, you know, Narnia and the Lord of the Rings books, et cetera, I was actually really uh, turned on to some of the more futuristic, you know, science fiction concepts that I've been reading in my Marvel comics as a kid around nanotech, around companies like Neuralink today. And it's a series of books called the Nexus Trilogy by an author who's a friend of mine named Ramez Nam. He's an ex-Microsoft computer scientist who just writes phenomenally well. And uh, the book is about, you have these like little nanobots implanted into your brain, obviously voluntarily, that allow you to connect to the internet, connect to other people. People, you know, have shared workspaces in your mind, collaborate on amazing art pieces together. So it kind of encourages humanity to move towards a kind of a melodic hive mind in a good way, not in a, you know, we are the Borg Star Trek way or anything. But like, it, it was a really uh, impactful book and kind of made me look really favorably upon new Elon Musk Neuralink type companies, which is uh, sounds really exciting. Wow, that's awesome. I'll certainly have to check it out. That's called Nexus Trilogy, is that right? Yeah, there's three books. It's the Nexus Trilogy by Ramez Nam. Excited to add that to our little book page on the website. That's great because no one else has mentioned that or actually Troublemakers either. So it'll be great to add both of those. Um, So what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? One that we did not too long ago is a company called Sway and they have an app called getsway.app is the URL. It uses deep fakes to generate body filters to make it look like you can dance, which I used to think I could, but I've been told many, many times as an adult man that that is not the case. The app actually went viral over Super Bowl weekend because they did a campaign with the rapper Lil Nas X on his Old Town Road Doritos commercial, whereby, and then like 
there's since then there's been Diplo has used the app for his, an entire music video for On My Mind is his track that he used it for. And it basically uses artificial intelligence to track your body and then be able to make it move however you want. So in this case, mimicking some of the trending dances on TikTok or, you know, eventually dunking like time. Pretty excited about it. Um, big believer in like updating modern day versions of interactive avatars and like how people are going to represent themselves in and beyond social worlds like Fortnite. When you get a metaverse out there in augmented and virtual reality, how would you express yourself through augmented reality, through you know, integration of real world brands into that digital world? These kind of things are have been exciting for me ever since I saw them kind of pop up in big MMORPG, World of Warcraft, Knights of the Old Republic type big PC video games. No, that sounds awesome. My final question is what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in didn't and in retrospect wish you did we don't have enough time on your podcast to go through my like laundry list of really terrible misses plus i'll probably just like have to go to sleep crying myself to sleep tonight i mean just remembering them all but one that does come to mind is probably flexport one of my first interns from chicago who joined us at signia was their very first employee uh, before they went into Y Combinator. And when I brought him in, I was a young, lowly associate and my team, my partnership passed. Today, those guys are pretty much the gold standard on all things international freight. So yeah, definitely have some egg on my face from not hitting the table harder on that one. I could be wrong about this. I thought Kate McAndrew also put Flexport too for hers. It was another investor as well. But yeah. Dude, for any investor that did not invest in that is, should feel bad about it. Who saw Definitely, it. yeah. I think the most popular one on my show for this question has been Stitch Fix. A lot of people pass on Stitch Fix that, that came on the show. My actual final question is, what's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? Um, I don't think this is just for B2C founders. I think this is just for any entrepreneur. Two things, know thyself and know, know thy industry or whatever, right? So you got to have faith in yourself to like get out of bed, to do something new that's super risky and starting a company, et cetera, right? Versus just going to the clock in at that nine to five. But you have to be really aware in anything entrepreneurial based and why me? Why am I the right person to go after solving this problem? For example, am I doing a men's personal care brand? I can't just say, oh, I'm a guy. I hate Gillette. I'm funny like the Dollar Shave Club guy. I think I could do what he did. Like, that's not good enough, right? You really need to have studied the market opportunity, looked into the sourcing margin, you know, economics, factor in logistics, packaging, marketing costs. What do you can you do to have an unfair distribution advantage relative to, you know, just spending money on Facebook ads? And then you kind of have to make sure you can make a profit, number one, before you ever put a dollar to work. You should have a giant spreadsheet. You should have 100 plus conversations with founders in the space, with investors in the space, you know, with big strategics in the space, with friends of yours that are doing anything ranging from an Amazon business all the way through to, you know, strategy consulting to, you know, stocking the shelves in a stock room, for example, right? All up and down the supply chain of talent. I think that's really, really important to fundamentally lead up to the most important thing, you know, before you actually build a product is go talk to prospective customers, prove that you're solving a real problem here that people would be willing to pay for, get them to sign up with an email address, get them to sign up with a credit card to show intent to purchase your product before you ever manufacture a thing. And just make sure that you've really assessed and quantified an opportunity here beyond just like, you know, sitting in an echo chamber in your own head in your living room during quarantine to be like, you know what, I don't like my nine to five, I'm gonna do a startup. Because the grass always looks greener. And let me tell you, it gets tough along the way. It's not just, you know, IPO bells uh, on the NASDAQ and living that, you know, that founder life. Like it, it can get really tough. I've been on that side of the table before and it's not at all rosy. So I think just really being sure 
that you know what you're getting into and you know why you're the right person to do it. It sounds like common sense, but you'll be so surprised the number of people that like stare at you like a deer in the headlights when you ask this question, like, why you, why are you the right person? So that's the best thing I can say. Absolutely. That's a great piece of advice. I think that you've touched on a number of great points that entrepreneurs need to reflect on and, and understand. Well, Sonny, this has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Amazing opportunity to chat to you, man. Thank you so much. And for any consumer founders out there, you know, looking for pre-seed through Series A kind of capital, we invest between 500K and about one and a half million dollars into amazing opportunities. So please do feel free to email them to me, shoot them to me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, et cetera. We're always looking for amazing founders to work with. So consider this an open door and an invitation to uh, to send your materials here. Thank you so much, dude, for having me. And there you have it. It was amazing having Sonny on the show. Feel free to follow him on Twitter at SunDillon. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.